Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and I are going to be talking about Interbike 2018. So, if you're following Single Tracks or you follow cycling news, you know that Interbike wrapped up last month in Reno, Nevada, and Matt and I were there for the show, and we wrote a ton of stories from the show. I think at last count, we had like 28 or 30 or so stories from the show. Um, And so we thought we would recap everything for those who weren't able to keep up with all those stories or for people who just ignored it, but they want like the Cliff Notes version. We got it for you here. I want to start off by talking about some of the big stuff, the stuff we actually experienced at the show, because a lot of the show is about just walking around and looking at stuff and talking about stuff. But there's a portion of the show called the Outdoor Demo, where people get to actually ride bikes and try stuff out. And this year it was held at North Star Bike Park, uh, which is actually in California, not too far away from Reno. So Matt and I were there for like a day and a half and we got to ride a few bikes while we were there. Matt, one of the first bikes that you got to ride was the Jameis Portal. How did that go? I really liked it. I think that was the first time I've ever ridden a Jameis. You know, they're more of a, you could say entry-level brand as far as like affordability. Right. But they have a new suspension platform. And I don't know, that was what stood out the most to me about the portal. Uh, it's like super supple, uh, it tracked really well over bumps, super good, small bump compliance. I ended up really liking it. I think it was sized up one size too big for me. I think it was on a 19 inch. It probably should have been on a 17 inch, mm-hmm. but on the right size, I think it would have been a, a pretty sick bike to have a little bit more time with. Yeah. And that's uh, like a trail bike, right? Yeah, it's 130 mil travel, 29er. Yeah, and so the bike park wasn't probably the best place to ride that, but you still you still made it down the mountain, right? You didn't die. Yeah, and it wasn't overwhelmed. Like, I was just warming up. You know, we had flown in that day, and um, I don't know, usually after, like, traveling and stuff, I don't really like to go too hard anyway. Yeah. So I just stuck on kind of the more single track-ish trails at the bike park, and it was it was great. Yeah. Did you get any pricing info for the bike? Like how affordable is it? I think that one was, I can't remember the top of my head, but I want to say low for, no, but that was the one that um, had Kashima fork and Fox stuff on. And I don't think they have a price point for that available. Hmm. Interesting. So that one might've been towards like five, I would assume. Okay. Yeah, not super affordable. I mean, for yeah. especially for a Jameis, I guess, like you said, people see it as more of a value brand. I don't know that they sell a lot of their high-end bikes. They probably sell more of the like mid to low-spec bikes. But yeah, that was definitely an interesting bike. We saw it first at Sea Otter. And so, yeah, I'm glad you got a chance to take it out for a spin. Yeah, it was worth it. So one of the first bikes that I rode out there was the Mondraker Foxy 29er. And this was my first time on a long travel 29er, actually. We just did the podcast about long travel 29ers and talked about a lot of these bikes, but this was my first time actually getting to ride one. And 
man, it was a really nice bike to start with. You know, it was a carbon build. I think it wasn't quite top of the line, but it was near the top. And this is, it's a big bike. Mondraker makes some bikes with like the longest reach of any of the bikes that are out there. And especially when you're looking at extra large 29er, like I was testing, I went up the mountain, like Matt said, we just flew in that day and didn't really know anything about the trail system there at the bike park and hadn't really looked at a map. And I was riding with one of the PR reps from Mondraker and he said, uh, yeah, what do, what do you feel like doing? You want to do like a, you know, jumpy kind of flow trail or you want to do something like a little more rocky and technical? And so, I mean, I'm not a big jumper by any means. Definitely don't have a lot of time riding bike parks. So I was like, well, let's do the rocky technical one. You know, I, yeah. I can roll over anything. You know, it might be slow, but let's do it. So he ended up taking me down, uh, what was it called? Gypsy? Is that the name of the yeah, trail? Yeah, Gypsy. Yeah, which is like a black diamond trail there. And it was definitely rocky, I will say that, and technical. Um, but it was like bike park rocky and technical, which wasn't really what I was expecting. A lot of like man-made stuff and like clearly every rock had been placed in a specific way. And there's a lot of like wooden features and stuff like that wasn't wasn't anticipating that but yeah but yeah still made it down the trail in one piece and the bike you know was able to handle everything really easily like a lot of it too it looks scarier than it ends up being you know you look at the stuff especially seeing it for the first time and you're like whoa like i don't know if i want to do that and you just kind of let off the brakes and go through it and the the foxy definitely handled it Easily. And one other thing I should mention too, before we actually went up the line for the gondola up to like the first stop, like mid mountain stop was really long. And so the guy I was riding with was like, Hey, you know, let's just, let's just pedal up to the the next lift and, you know, we'll catch it up there. The line's probably shorter. So I was like, okay, sounds good. So we rode up the mountain on these bikes. I, he was on a Mondraker as well, but so I got, I got some good climbing time in on the Foxy and the Foxy is an enduro bike. So, you know, clearly it's optimized more for descending than it is for climbing, but it actually, it was no problem. Like, you know, it was maybe a 10 or 15 minute climb up the mountain. We didn't see anybody else climbing up the mountain except people on e-bikes. So felt pretty good about that. And, you know, it, the, it got really steep toward the top, but again, the, the bike climbed really well, wasn't super wandery or anything. So it's definitely a cool bike. It's one I could see owning and, you know, using at places beyond the bike park for sure. You know, I mean, it would be a good all day epic, like backcountry bike even, um, without, without really wearing you out too much. Yeah. It sounded like it pedaled pretty well then. Yeah. I mean, all these enduro bikes, seem to pedal pretty well these days, much better than they used to. And, and, you know, this one's of course is carbon fiber and it's under 30 pounds. And so that helps a lot too. Yeah. So Matt, what was another bike that you got to test while we were at Intermike? So after that, it was, uh, we went back the next morning, Monday morning. Um, and I rode the pivot Mach 5.5 with the Fox live valve. Oh, sweet. So yeah, that was, that was interesting, right? Cause it, it just came out, uh, I don't know, a month, month or two ago. Yeah. It's kind of the big buzz and or at least, or at least made a, a little bit of a wave um, just because it's, you know, it's a big piece of technology and Fox has been developing it for a while. So it was, uh, 
it's cool to get some time on that. Yeah, that's one of those where we you know, have read a lot about it and have heard how it's supposed to work. How did it, how did it work in your experience? I mean, were you able to tell that it was doing anything or, I mean, a bike park, I guess it's not, it's not going to be super active because you're pretty much descending the whole time. Right. But what did you find from your test? It's certainly mind blowing. Like, so I went on another trip the following week after Interbike and the people that hadn't gone asked me if there's anything that blew my mind. I took a second to think about it. And I mean, Fox live valve is actually pretty mind blowing. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of money. It's not necessarily like you don't need it, but the technology that's there is it's pretty incredible. And you can definitely tell that it's working in the bike park. Cause I mean, even, even in the bike park, the terrain will change a lot of it. You know, you'll hit a descent for a while and you'll have some, small 25 yard climb in the middle and then maybe it'll flatten out and uh start going back downhill but i mean it works quickly and it works without you noticing it and you know it does does a lot of the thinking for you doesn't adjust compression settings so yeah i would have needed more time to you know find the right uh low speed compression for my preference but overall it's it's pretty cool yeah that's awesome. And then the Mach 5.5, was that your first time riding that bike? What'd you think of it? Yeah, first time on that one. And it reminded me of a different pivot I rode a few years ago. I can't remember what it was, but most of the pivots that I've been on, or at least both of those, have been very stiff, very snappy and responsive. Um, and it felt the same way on that Mach 5.5, like a very responsive bike, very stiff, definitely a good bike for the bike park, uh, but also only 140 millimeters of travel. So yeah, something you can pedal around all day and not, not get tired of. Yeah, that's cool. And that also had the new XTR group on it. Again, you're at the bike park, so you weren't doing a lot of shifting or pedaling or anything, but any first impressions from it? Yeah, it's, it's nice. Um, it's very crisp. The shifter has like a much different feel to it than any other shifter I've really used. There seems to be like a much more subtle like tension to it at the first push to where I guess maybe the previous XTR or like other high tier drivetrains will be like a really short click and it'll shift. This one had more of like a tension push to it. And the XTR brakes, I felt like had a little bit more modulation than they previously have had. Huh. Interesting. Another one of the bikes that I got a chance to test was the Canyon Spectral and that's a trail bike. Um, it's pretty, I think it's pretty low on the travel spectrum, even for a trail bike. It's like 120, 130 millimeters of rear travel. And Canyon just updated this bike for 2019, I believe. And uh, again, this wasn't, wasn't a great bike for the bike park, but at the same time, um, you know, we, I didn't have any problems. And again, this time, I think you and I got to ride together for a little bit and we yeah. headed out to like one side of the mountain where there weren't a lot of people riding and there's some more like natural terrain, technical stuff. And that seemed to be a good, good spot for that bike. You know, it's a 27.5 bike, which is a little bit surprising because we're seeing so many 29ers and especially at that lower travel amount. Um, you don't see a lot of new 27.5 bikes, but because it had the smaller wheels, it definitely was like 
super maneuverable is really good in those like tight techie uh, trails and and sections you know it's a carbon fiber bike as well and sort of like you were saying with the pivot this canyon i mean it's it's very stiff and you know i've tested a few canyon bikes over the past couple years and like you said too you know certain bike brands like they have this this feel that they're known for you know the pivot that you tried is similar to another pivot that you've tried, even though it's a different bike, different amount of travel, different use case. And I find the same with the canyons that they tend to be sort of, they feel sort of racy to me, like a little bit on the, the shock is like more on the linear side where it doesn't have a lot of like small bump compliance. You know, it's really just about like moving fast and, and not slowing down for anything. And a lot of ways too, the feel reminds me of like specialized bikes. And I don't know if that's intentional, but the bikes, they kind of look and they feel like specialized bikes to me. But the Canyon bikes, obviously they, they offer a really great value. I think the one I was testing, the Spectral build, I think it's like the 9.0. There's actually like three 9.0s, which is annoying, but <laughs> it's like the it's like the second to the top build. And I think it's Right now it's on sale for like 4200 bucks, And, you know, I mean, it's like I said, it's almost top of the line. There's only one bike that, that's got a better spec. And so it's got really good parts on it. It's just a really solid bike. And yeah, I had a lot of fun on it. I could definitely see myself getting one of those, especially just given the value that that bike offers. Yeah, it's a deal. Matt, you also got to test a Canyon bike and you were on the Torque, right? What, what kind of bike is that? Yeah, so Torque was ideal for North Star or like any bike park really. Uh, so it's 27.5 and it's I think 170 or 175 mil rear travel and then 180 mil fork on it. So it's just like this silly big bike like meant to be thrown off cliffs and drops and rocks <laughs> and pretty much anything. It was fun. It's like a big sofa on wheels that goes really fast. Uh, yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, is that so? That bike, as I recall, too, is it was a really high end one, carbon fiber. Did you find it to be too light in any way? Like, was it? Did it feel stable when you were at the bike park? Yeah, I felt stable. I felt like it was. I think I saw a spec weight for it, like on their website, and it felt heavier to me than like the listed weight. Hmm. It definitely did not feel too light. And it, not to say it was like a real heavy bike or anything. It's pretty light for what it is, but. Um, it didn't feel too light for, for what it was. Yeah, that's good. Maybe it had some of that North Star moon dust clinging to it. <laughs> yeah. It made it a little extra heavy. Right. It's a fun bike. And for, I think for five grand, it was, you know, Cashma fork and, and rear shock and X01 drivetrain. So it's solid deal. Yeah, it's crazy. The pricing on the canyons and canyon we should note too they're you know they are a direct-to-consumer brand and they had set up at the event because the first couple of days were open to the public and so you know obviously they events like that are great for direct-to-consumer brands so that people who are thinking about buying one of these bikes online can actually come out and test one but then they ended up staying for the industry days which is kind of, you know, a lot of people are like, why would they do that? Because they don't need dealers. Like, you know, they're, they're not really there to like introduce the brand to any dealers. Cause if you're a dealer, you can't sell them, but they ended up having like the longest line of any of the brands that were there. You know, people were really curious about testing the bikes and, you know, these weren't even media people, you know, that Matt and I, 
uh, were able to get bikes reserved. And so we kind of skipped ahead of the line, but like there are a lot of dealers and just industry people that want to see what these bikes are about. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So the, the last bike that I got to test was the Tantrum Shining and the Tantrum bikes are, I, I had forgotten we had written about these like a year or so ago. They were first kind of introduced at, I think it was Interbike last year. And then there was also like a Kickstarter to do this. But basically, um, this guy, Brian uh, Bertald, is the guy who came up with this brand. And he, the bikes use a unique suspension platform called the Missing Link which sounds really like mysterious. And what's funny is Brian's actually the guy who invented Kona's magic link for those who remember that a few years ago. And he's done some other stuff in the industry as well. And again, I I had met Brian too, when they did the Kona launch the magic link at Interbike several years ago. So it was interesting to see him there. He had like a real low key booth and he only had like four bikes or something, but a friend of mine from Atlanta that works in a bike shop was at outdoor demo and he had just ridden the bike and he was like, Oh man, you got to try this bike. It's amazing. And so, uh, the next day I, I went over and got on one and it is really interesting. I wish I had more time to test it out, but the bike felt great. It was my favorite of the three that I got to test over the day and a half or so, um, at the bike park. Yeah. It, it really, you know, felt really, the suspension is, is very progressive, um, had really good small bump compliance. And I guess, I guess that's, that's what I like. Um, starting to figure out is, you know, that's a good metric for me. Like, is it good at small bump and smoothing things out? Then I'm probably going to like the bike, but it's like 160 millimeters of travel. But the big thing is that the missing link basically, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of physics involved and all the mechanical stuff that, Honestly, I don't understand all of it, but the idea is that it, like all bikes, it makes a full suspension bike climb like a hardtail. And what's interesting is it, it really does. I mean, again, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to test it, but I did point the bike uphill and, and pedal for a little bit and it did feel really good. And I actually haven't written up this review of the bike yet, this test ride review, because... I still just need to do more research on it. I looked at some of the early coverage, you know, when the bikes were finally, they had like prototypes and stuff. And some of the other mountain bike publications got to do tests and meet with Brian. And I read all those reviews and, you know, these were like a year from a year ago or some of them maybe two years ago. And every single one of them was so glowing. They were all just like, this is mind blowing. Like this is, you know, some of them, I don't even think they stopped short of saying like, this is the best like suspension platform we've ever tried or something. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but they, they were all really glowing and really like, this is awesome. And yet like nobody has one of these bikes, you know, (laughs) they're not like selling out all over the place and you haven't heard anything since then. So I'm really curious about whether it really works, you know, I mean, again, I didn't get a a long test ride in on it. And so I don't know all the nuances of it. Um, based on what I saw and based on what I've read, like it's amazing. But then I still have the question of like, well, why isn't this, why isn't this being talked about more? Why aren't more people riding these bikes? So I'm going to dig into that. Yeah. I'm going to dig into that a little more. It is really like an interesting or unique looking rear shock setup also. 
Yeah, it's hard to explain, but yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of information online. And so I'm hoping to talk with Brian some more. I had some initial questions that he answered for me, but like I said, I'm going to dig into it a little bit more. So moving on from bikes, uh, we went over to the convention center and saw a bunch of products. So I wanted to just run through and talk about the most interesting stuff that we saw. So Matt, what uh, what jumps out at you, like top of your list? I mean, for me, it was like, it was kind of a lot of the little things that I saw. I don't know, just little innovative things like the Oakley helmet that stows your sunglasses, which, you know, again, might not be necessary or might might not even work. We haven't tested it, but <laughs> it's still, uh, you know, it, it's something different that we haven't seen before. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, it is definitely interesting. Are you just being nice and, and saying like, that's interesting or because <laughs> to me, it looked a little like gimmicky and yeah. But at the same time, if it's going to hold your two hundred, three hundred dollars sunglasses, it better work. For sure. Yeah. And that's what I noticed about looking at Oakley's booth is everything in their whole lineup is like it's oriented towards vision, which makes sense. But mm-hmm. even on their new helmet, which is a mountain bike helmet, um, you have little things like that that holds your sunglasses. So it's just meant to really keep like your vision, you know, I don't know, just, just keep your vision in mind. And then they're doing the new goggles with, um, instead of like a foam liner, it's a mesh liner. So you get more ventilation just, yeah, everything's about vision with them, which is, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, things like that magnetic hood from Liat. So they have like a cold weather riding gear now, and it has these little magnets in the hood so that if you have your hood down, it'll all sit and stay together rather than kind of flapping around in your ride. Oh yeah. Yeah. Little things like that. The magnetic Fidlock water bottles have been kind of geeking out about, um, cause that's always been a problem for me in my frame, uh, except a small frame and the shock is like inside of it. So it can't really fit a water bottle, but with one of these, we got some stuff to review also, like you can pretty much mount a water bottle anywhere. And then even aside from that, the magnetic mounts that you can mount up, like get rid of the cage. So you don't have this ugly cage on your really nice frame. It's just kind of sleek and the, uh, water bottle snaps into place without, you know, any cage or anything. Yeah. So you don't need the, you don't need water bottle mounts on your frame. You can just put it anywhere. There's a certain one that has these rubber straps, um, that will wrap around the tube. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of ugly, <laughs> but you know, if you want hydration and you don't want to wear a fanny pack, then it's useful for the other ones. They mount up with a water bottle cage. So, uh, or a water bottle cage mount, I should say. Yeah. Um, so it's like this little magnetic bar, uh, hard plastic magnets on the inside. Um, and you screw it into your water bottle mount and then the water bottle just sort of like clasps on with magnets. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. One of the most interesting things to me was, uh, this, there's this new material called super magnesium that a company called all light is pushing for use in building not just mountain bike frames, but all kinds of bike components, uh, you know, everything from like mounts to drivetrain stuff to you name it. And it's interesting because one, there haven't been a lot of new frame materials. I mean, we hear about stuff like scandium and, you know, it sounds like it's something new, but really it's just aluminum with 
a little bit of scandium and it's just an aluminum alloy. So basically, you know, we, we just have like steel, titanium, aluminum, carbon, and then other weird stuff, but super magnesium sort of falls in between aluminum and carbon according to the marketing materials and the people I talk to. And so the, the material itself is actually, it's mostly magnesium. It's going to be 90% or more. And there are various alloys that this company is able to make using this, what they, the umbrella term they use, which is super magnesium. Um, but depending on how, what you're using it for, if it's a frame, it's one alloy. If it's like a component, it's going to be a slightly different alloy. Um, but basically, again, it sits between carbon and aluminum in terms of pricing and also in terms of weight. There haven't been, there have been some like prototype bikes that have been built up using the material. So it's not really clear exactly like where the weights are going to fall because you have to take into account things like tube diameter and, you know, the way that the, the tubes are put together and, and welded, for lack of a better term. And, so it's possible that it could be lighter than titanium, just depending on, you know, what people are able to do with the material and how they're able to figure out like the best use for it. It's interesting too, because the material is not like aluminum or steel where you could, you know, like a independent fabricator could just like weld up some bikes using it. You need definitely need some special equipment and special techniques to do it because magnesium is highly flammable. And so you got to be careful when you're working with that. And so for that reason, the company, their plan is to do a lot of the manufacturing themselves. So like a bike partner could come to them and say, hey, we want to do a bike out of all light and here's the design and then all light will, you know, find a way to get it fabricated. What's interesting and what the people at all light didn't tell me and what I don't, I don't know that any of the other publications picked up on, but all light is shares a parent company with Niner and Huffy. Potentially, you know, if we're going to see bikes made with this material anytime soon, uh, there's a good chance it's going to be a Niner or uh, maybe a Huffy. I don't know. Maybe Airborne is more like a better choice for that. Airborne's also owned by Huffy. Yeah, we'll we'll be watching out for that. The material was actually developed for like classified military uses and so this um, at Interbike was sort of their coming out party where they have now commercialized this technology and this material and they're able to use it outside of like classified applications. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a really high tech material um, and it's going to be interesting to see who picks this up and runs with it. And, and it'll be really cool if, yeah, if there's another option that's like, you know, a little bit a little bit nicer and lighter than aluminum, but uh, not quite as expensive as carbon. So where does the stiffness stack up versus aluminum and carbon? That's a good question. So they have all kinds of stats about, you know, it's X percent stronger or stiffer or whatever. But again, it comes down to things like the tube diameters and, you know, the wall thicknesses and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, in my opinion, that stuff is still TBD. Um, even talking about like failure modes and stuff, like they they don't have a lot of good answers because, again, this hasn't been done in bikes yet. Um, they're very confident that it can be done and that there are a lot of clear advantages to it. But again, there's not a lot of like 
real world data yet to see like how it performs as a part of like a bike frame system. The other interesting thing is that they say it's, it's got like a good environmental footprint, like if that's important to people and especially compared to carbon. I mean, we're starting to hear that carbon is not good for the environment for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact that it's not recyclable as of yet. And it's also not, you know, it doesn't biodegrade. I mean, I guess over a long enough time period, it will eventually, but for most purposes, it's not. Uh, Whereas All Light says their super magnesium will biodegrade faster than even like aluminum and steel, which is surprising. And they also say that magnesium is one of the most abundant minerals or elements, elements on the earth. And so there's a good supply of it. The stuff that they alloy it with, though, are these, what do you call them? Oh, rare earth elements, which kind of like muddies the water, in my opinion, because these are rare earth elements. So they are rare. And today, these elements are super important because they're used in cell phones and all kinds of electronics and things. And even though it uses a small percentage, say it's 2% of the alloy or something, these are rare. And so even small amounts of them can be difficult to, you know, extract and manufacture and purify and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how scalable this whole thing is. Yeah. And you still have to mine for all those materials too. So, and there's carbon footprint there. Right. Exactly. Um, but they, I, I guess they say though that that part of it is also easier, like easier than aluminum and easier than some of the other ones. So um, they seem to be seem to be pretty confident that it's got a, a much better overall environmental footprint. So we'll see. Yeah, we should check it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see if if I mean the other question is does that matter to people? You know, I mean, people said yeah. for a long time that they wanted to buy bikes made in the U.S. and they're willing to go you know, pay more and to go to various lengths, but you know, that's kind of worn off. Like nobody, right. nobody cares anymore. Or, or if they do like tough luck, nobody's making them in the U S. So, yeah. Uh, what other interesting stuff did you see there, Matt? Well, I guess in terms of bike racks, you know, the whole, uh, don't touch the frame. Don't, don't yeah. put your hands, don't put your rack on my frame. <laughs> I don't want anything touching it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, you know, uh, Thule and Inov or, Inov has been developing their frameless bike rack tray rack, I guess, uh, I guess you'd call it for a while and they're finally ready to ship. And then Thule was showing a new one and that one I think will be ready, uh, in the spring of 2019. And so, you know, it's, it's a tray rack, the ends of the trays come up and hold the tires in place and, you know, you don't have any frame contact, no rim contact, just the tires. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't, doesn't wear in your paint, doesn't wear in your rim decals. It seems like it's a growing trend for, for bike racks. Yeah. I didn't realize how touchy people were about that, about having a rack, you know, touch their frame or their fork at all. Um, you know, I've, I've always used the ones that have the arm that kind of like wedges between your tire and the top of like your stanchion on your fork. And we reviewed one of those a while ago, a Kuat and, you know, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, it looks pretty cool. But you know, like I can't get, I can't get that because it touches the fork and it's like, it barely touches the fork and, and it's like a little piece of rubber that's on there. But you know, if you, if you do a lot of traveling with your bike, like over time, that's gonna, it is going to rub and potentially wear a spot on your bike, your pretty bike. So yeah, 
seems like there's demand. And in your article and your post about those new offerings was one of the more popular ones from Interbike, which was kind of surprising to me. I mean, to me, it's kind of a boring category, if I can say so. Um, but, sure. you know, I mean, it's one of those things, it's like, you need to have a bike rack, like everybody has to have one, but nobody gets excited about like getting a new one or whatever, but, but people were really into it. Yeah. One of the things is like, so one up debuted this type of uh rack, I don't know, a number of years ago. I don't know when, but now that that design is catching on, everybody is kind of claiming that they're copies of one up Thule or Ceres is going to be overpriced and this and that. Um, but I spoke with, Chris Ritchie from Thule last week and you know in regards to that he was saying that they are getting their racks approved by European auto standards which go through like a whole other you know approval process as far as like being approved to be on the road safely and uh you know in Europe it's way different in America they don't have to approve their racks to you just throw any old thing on the back of your car and go down the road huh yeah like they don't face DOT safety standards, at least like from what I was catching on. So there's a whole other side to the R and D that goes into making it for yeah. European market. And then it can be sold in America. And those one up racks are not cheap. I mean, they look really basic and simple, but if you've ever priced them, they are, they're premium, premium price. Yeah, definitely. Cool. One of the other articles that was really popular and maybe was a letdown to some people, if I'm honest, is the most interesting hardtails of Interbike. And <laughs> yeah. and like that is a truthful title, but the fact of the matter is there weren't a lot of interesting ones there. But we highlighted the ones that were the best of, of the ones that were there. So which ones stood out to you, if any? Yeah, and, and just to say, it was, it was the most interesting hardtails of Interbike, not in the world. <laughs> right. There's certainly more interesting hardtails out there. But for me, what stood out about them is they're just, they're not brands that you see around the States often, like Bianchi and Van Dessel. Yeah, they're certainly not uh, not mind-blowing by any means, but you don't see a lot of them in the States, and it sounds like they're going to be selling more of their bikes out this way. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, too, is uh, I assumed... If we did see hardtails at Interbike, they would be more of the hardcore variety. But these were, mm-hmm. these were the ones that we found were, they're all pretty like safe, traditional, like XC, maybe trail ish, but entry level. Really like a, yeah, entry level too, which was, is kind of a letdown, I guess. But I mean, there's definitely a market for that. You can get one of those Bianchi hardtails for what, like under a grand, one of them, I think. Yeah, some of them are, um, they have different price points, but some of them are seven, eight, nine hundred bucks. Yeah. And the frame is still solid. It's just, you're going to have some upgrades to make along the way. Right. And, you know, it's got that iconic color, that, that green that Bianchi's known for. You know, I mean, it's like, it's a status symbol. It's surprising to me that it sells for such a low price here in the U.S. So if you're, if you're into that, if you want to, you know, look, look cool with your road buddies, then might be a good option. Yeah, considering some of the road bikes are like 12 grand, it's uh Yeah. So, I stopped by the Osprey Pack booth and Osprey is a name people are really familiar with. You know, they jumped into the hydration pack market a few years ago and basically like took over a big part of it. I mean, I don't have any stats, but I would guess that they sell you know, they're probably the second best selling to Camelback, if not, you know, maybe on par with Camelback now. Um, they really did a great job with their Raptor series and 
the Talon. They had a number of packs that a lot of people bought and have enjoyed. Like the packs have always been really comfortable and like well-made. Um, and so this year Osprey is updating basically like their whole line, like all the packs have been redesigned as far as I recall. Um, and they are even splitting the lines into like men's and women's packs. Um, so there'll be like the Raptor and then there's like the women's version of the Raptor that's got a different sort of anatomical design, like in terms of the straps and, uh, like the size and weight and stuff and the colors too, but that's not like a big part. It's not like, Oh, the women's, those are like the pink and purple packs. Um, it really is like a different pack and it's got a different name to it and everything. Um, and honestly like hydration packs, I haven't worn one for years, but I know that a lot of people still do. And so the other news was that Osprey has a couple of new hip packs and that was sort of what we focused on in our coverage. Um, just cause that's what I'm into. And I think that's what you're into too. Right, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so the, the, the regular packs are really cool and sorry, we didn't cover those more. Um, we'll probably get some samples in at some point, you know, we also had like sort of a moratorium on pack reviews, hydration packs. Cause it's like every week somebody was like, Hey, can you review this pack? And it's like, <laughs> you know, they're all kind of the same, but, but it's, we've taken a couple years off. And so there's definitely been some innovations there and we should probably start uh, reviewing some more of those, but the hip packs are what I was really excited about. And Osprey before had a hip pack that a number of people have used. I used it a few years ago. Um, I've got friends that I ride with that use it like every single ride. Um, but their pack was designed for trail running really. So it wasn't a bike specific pack, but a lot of mountain bikers were using it. And it was one of these packs that you can put water bottles in. So I think it actually came with two water bottles, two Osprey bottles. Um, but their new mountain bike specific hip packs. There's two of them. Um, one of them is a smaller pack that you can put two water bottles in this time. It doesn't come with the two water bottles, but, uh, the price on it is only 55 bucks, which is actually really good for, yeah, for a mountain bike hip pack. And for me personally, I, I like the smaller ones for sure. Cause if you load up a hip pack too much, it's definitely going to bounce around and it's going to be a little bit awkward. So, but then they also have a pack that comes with a bladder. So some more traditional like hydration solution, uh, a little bit bigger, more carrying capacity. And of course it's got the cool like magnetic attachment thing for the hose, the bite valve. So you can keep that tucked out of the way. That was one of the things I think that set Osprey apart initially when they started coming over the bike market was that magnet lock thing. And so you'll see that on the hip pack as well. Yeah. And if, I mean, honestly, if you're not using a hip pack on like a sub two hour ride, you're definitely missing out on a lot more comfort. Yeah. Let's not try to convince people, Matt. People just get angry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. We, again, we got a lot of blowback. People are like, Oh, hip packs are so dumb. Why do you guys how like they're dumb? So yeah, but that's cool. I mean, I, I really don't, I don't care. Like <laughs> if somebody, you know, whatever you like best, like that's what's best. And so, totally, yeah, you know, and, and I'm not even saying you have to give it a try. You don't have to give it a try, but some people like it. 
Let's talk about Muckoff Sealant. That was a pretty cool thing. One of the first things we saw at like the media preview. What was interesting about that, Matt? Well, it has a UV dye in it, so you can uh, see your punctures with a little UV light that it'll come with. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting concept. And the the sealant itself is pink, and so right. you would think that would make it a little bit easier to see as well. But yeah, there's always those like tiny punctures that you can't figure out where they're coming from. And I don't know. I'm interested to see how well this works or how useful it actually is. Yeah. And it's latex based, right? Which is a, a big deal. Uh, some like the other sealants haven't been and are not as reliable as the latex based stuff. Yeah. And w- you know, we did that test recently, the long-term sealant test and the two that came out winners far and above were the two latex-based ones. And so based on that article and that test, you know, a lot of people were like, hey, can you test this sealant or that sealant? And so we've actually lined up a number of those, including the muck-off sealant. And so Patrick's going to be working on that. So stay tuned in three to four months, which is <laughs> how long it's going to take, yeah. you know, to actually get some results in for that because, uh, you know, it's all about long-term reliability. So right will be interesting to see. We saw, so I saw from the Magura booth uh, a couple of things. One, they had a set of 125th anniversary breaks. And that's just, that just blew me away because like, you know, in the bike industry, yeah, we think about companies that have been around for like 20 or 40 years or whatever, but Magura has been making stuff for motorcycles and bicycles since the 1800s. So they're celebrating their 125th anniversary. And I also got a chance to learn a little bit more about their wireless dropper post. And um, this one, I, I don't remember when it came out or when it was announced. It's been a little while, maybe a year or more. And again, this is one of those products that kind of came out and it seemed to be pretty like mind blowing, but then we haven't heard a lot about it since then. But, but yeah, I also talked to Eric Porter, professional mountain bike rider when I was out in Idaho and he really raves about the seat post um, just because he has a bunch of different bikes that he rides. And so he's able to easily just like pull the dropper out of one bike and stick it in another bike and go for a ride, um, which, you know, it might be like a unique use case. Not everybody needs to swap their dropper post among a bunch of bikes, but yeah, it seems like it would be nice if you have a bunch. And then also, you know, my own experience with dropper posts is that people talk about the reliability problems they have with their droppers. And like, you know, I hear a lot of stories about people who are on a ride and like the post gets stuck down or up and they can't move it for the whole ride. And it's really frustrating. But I would say in my experience, like 80 to 90% of the times that I've had problems like that, it's been because of the remote, you know, it's the something with the cable is getting kinked or it's, you know, gets out of the housing or whatever. And so this definitely eliminates like sort of that weak link between input and output, I guess you would say. Yeah. At least takes one of, one of the issues off the table possibly. Yeah. Or, or it introduces a new one because (laughs) your battery, I mean, maybe your battery runs out or I don't know. Yeah. It's wireless. So it's hard to like troubleshoot it. The pricing on it is a little steep. It's around 500 bucks, which is going to be more than a traditional dropper post. Uh, even some of the higher end ones. So, but again, if you're replacing dropper posts on 
three bikes, you know, say you've got a fat bike and you've got a enduro bike and you've also got a trail bike or XC bike or even a road bike. If you, if they're all the same tube diameter, you know, it could be a good thing to swap between all those bikes. Cause who wants to buy three or four dropper posts? That's up. <laughs> yeah. And I find myself too, I've gone on a couple gravel rides over the summer and on some of these descents, I'm like, you know, my reflex is like, Oh, where's the dropper? Where's the dropper? And so <laughs> yeah. it definitely is useful for any kind of bike that you would be on really. So, but, but who wants to spend $300 for like a road bike dropper post? Right. Could be worth looking into. Oh, another cool thing that you saw and wrote about was this $99 full face helmet. Who makes that? What's, what's the deal with that? So that was 661. Um, so it's just, you know, they've always had really affordable full face helmets. I think, yeah, actually I have a 661 helmet that I bought for like 35 bucks <laughs> on a sale in like 2013. I still got it. Wow. So they've always had really affordable full face stuff and now they'll have a MIPS version for 150. Um, and it's a good looking helmet too. It's not yeah one of those that you buy and then you go to the bike park and like four out of five people have it. It's like the same pointy <laughs> design, yeah. but like it, it's a good looking helmet. Definitely. Yeah. It's not like a football helmet either or anything like cheesy looking. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks like a really nice helmet. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, again with the MIPS, uh, the guy I was talking to there was saying that I think it was Dale Earnhardt Jr. Hopefully I get this right. That he died not because of like severe like impact trauma, but it was more the rotational trauma that causes death. So again, MIPS, MIPS is pretty important to have. Yeah. So 150 bucks for a MIPS full face helmet. I mean, it's, it's funny too, though. It's like, it's like, that's a really great price. But then I wonder like, why is it $50 more? Why is it 50% more than the $99 helmet? Cause right. it's just a piece of plastic, but I'm sure there's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> so I also caught up with Kevin Wren. He's the guy behind Wren Components and took a look at some of his products. You know, they've had the fat bike fork for a while, but it's an inverted fat bike fork. And I guess I knew about it before, but I'd never really like paid close attention to it. Um, it's, it's actually a really high end fork from a brand that's not normally associated with suspension. And it's, it's not cheap fork. It's 999 bucks, but it has up to 150 millimeters of travel, which is a lot for a fat bike. Yeah. Uh, again, it's got the inverted design, which is really good. Like should be really reliable and last a long time. And then Ren also makes a number of other components. He had a set of handlebars there, or a number of different versions of handlebars, carbon bars, up to 840 millimeters in width, Dang. which I, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping track, but I feel like that's the longest I've heard of. It's probably it's the longest I've heard of. Yeah. And there's probably some longer ones, but he made it a point to say that you can cut these bars like a lot. You know, a lot of companies they'll design the bars or tune them so that there's like sort of a range that you can cut them in, but it's not a whole lot. You know, you could take off like ten, maybe twenty millimeters, but these bars, I think they were more cuttable. Like you could you'd take them down a lot more if 840 is too much. And of course he's got the 35 millimeter clamp diameter for those who are into that new ish size. And then also he had like some really affordable mini pumps, like a really nice one, an aluminum pump that was like 
25 bucks. And Kevin was, he's a really interesting character. I, I think I'd, I'd love to hear an interview with him or get more of his story in the future. But, you know, he's, he's this guy in his sixties. He's been in the industry a long time. And, uh, several years ago, he finally like decided to go out on his own and put his own name on a number of products like the ones he was showing. But but apparently he had been like homeless recently, like a few years ago or right around the time he was starting his business. And uh, he's able to, you know, scrape together the money to, to start Ren and his business partners, another guy sort of his age, like in his 60s. And, you know, he said like he's not in it to make money. Like he's just doing it because he's having fun and like he prices his products based on that. I'm just like, yeah, I don't need to make a lot of money on it. I just want to help people have fun on their bikes. And I don't know, it seemed like a really interesting story. Yeah, definitely. And that was one of the trends that I kind of picked up on too. It seemed like there were a number of more affordable products this year. Companies are starting to realize that they can't keep raising prices on bike stuff. People have been complaining for probably since the beginning of mountain biking about how expensive stuff is. And it seems like companies are doing more to address that this year. You know, we saw the the $149 helmet you were talking about, Matt. And I saw there's some stuff that is not has not been announced yet from a brand that I can't mention, but they have a whole new line of clothing that's going to be super affordable. You know, we're talking jerseys for under $30 and uh, like protection pads and stuff that's, you know, f- in the 50 to $60 range. So it's, it's cool to see companies offering these more affordable options and hopefully that'll help younger people get into the sport as well. Yeah. And that brand that you're talking about, they had traditionally been, you know, more of like the premium apparel type of brand too, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Don't want to give too much away, but yeah. And I don't know, I don't know what's driving it. I mean, imagine it's Nike and it's, a lot of these sort of grassroots creators that we see online too. I mean, a lot of the, you see a lot of these like YouTube videos of people riding Walmart bikes. And there's this guy I found recently, I think, yeah, his name is, is Kevin. His channel is like Kev Central. And that's what he does. He like reviews these like budget bikes and stuff. And it's like wildly popular. So there's definitely a lot of demand for that information and for those types of products. And so hopefully we'll see that as a trend and, and that'll influence other brands as well to keep their prices down. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. So one of the things I always like to do every year is look for like weird stuff. And this year we didn't do a roundup of all the weird stuff, but what's something that you saw or some things you saw that are weird or different or out there? I mean, aside from, you know, kind of the gadgets and stuff we talked about, the magnetic water bottles, a few nutrition things. So the Goo brand, we were just talking about Nika, but they're doing a partnership this year with Nika and had a bunch of youth athletes help them develop a new flavor, which is French toast. Mmm, delicious. So, yeah, yeah, French toast uh, flavored goo for endurance rides. And they did two other flavors, chai latte. Oh, man, I can't think of it. <laughs> yeah, and then Honey Stinger came out with some new bars that are like, they're really good. They're coated in chocolate. They're filled with like peanut butter and almond butter and stuff. I think they're more snack bars in there, like endurance type of uh, athletic fuel. Mm -hmm. But that stuff's good. Then we looked at uh, products from Floyd's. So Floyd Landis, uh, ex-Tour de France racer, 
Um, mountain biker is, you know, he's been doing the CBD stuff for a while and he had some more products that he's, he's coming out with. So yeah. And CBD stands for cannabidiol. I don't know if I want to say it's a byproduct, but yeah, I mean, it comes from a marijuana plant. So it's like a derivative of that. And, you know, people are using it for anti-inflammatory stuff. So rubbing them, rubbing it on their joints afterwards. Some people are even using it to reduce anxiety in their pets. Um, <laughs> right. That's what they pitched. This It's like a recovery drink or a shake or something is the, their mm-hmm. new product. And yeah, it says that right on the package that it's for like recovery, like pain stuff, but also helps you relax. And yet it doesn't have yeah. any THC or any of that psycho, right. psychoactive. Psychoactive. Tropes. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, I, I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not definitely not up on the whole thing and whatever, but it, it seems weird that it helps you relax, but it's not psychoactive. Yeah. The CBD is supposed to have anti-anxiety properties itself aside from THC. Hmm. So more or less like soothing anxiety um, rather than like getting you high, for for example. Right. But yeah, but they're both, uh, yeah. Cons- uh, is it considered a drug? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in a lot of states, it's still illegal just because it falls under like Schedule 1 um, drug categories. So yeah, you got to kind of make sure what the laws in your state are. Uh, but Floyd's will ship. They'll ship to any state off their website. And yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's just supposed to help with uh, anti-inflammatory uh, agents rather than like taking Advil or Tylenol and um, may even help with your anxiety. Hmm. Interesting. So I saw some pretty interesting stuff from Lazine. And I guess I wouldn't call any of it weird, but they always have a lot of cool, like technical products. You know, they do lights and GPS units and they have a new GPS. They have a new light that they have. Some of their tools are pretty interesting. They have a floor pump that has like a tool stash inside the handle of the floor pump. And, you know, it's kind of follows on the trend of like tool stashes in frames and on bikes that we're seeing, but at first glance, you're like, well, why? Like if I'm in my shop and I got my floor pump, like I probably have my tools there too. But it seems interesting just because one, you can never have enough multi-tools laying around. I'm always like, you know, doing something. I'm like, oh shoot, I need an Allen wrench. Like it's nice to have one close by. And then also, yeah, maybe it just keeps your stuff organized if you don't need a big tool kit. So it'll be interesting to see if that sells well for them or if it's just kind of a gimmicky product. And then they also have, like a lot of other companies we're seeing, have a torque tool that you can take on the trail. It's like a ratcheting torque tool. Actually, I don't know that there's as ratcheting, but it is, it's got like a nice handle that you can use as a T handle or an L and it's got a bunch of different bits in it and you can set the torque value. So a good one that's small enough to take on the trail and it's got all the different bits so you can, you know, do Torx bits or you can do Allen or hex, however you prefer to call it and <laughs> can get those, the right torque values. Cause those are really important these days, especially if you have carbon bits on your bike, you need to get the torque values right. And for safety too, you know, on brake stuff, 
definitely want to make sure that's dialed. And we we saw these from a number of people. Topeak has one that I believe is ratcheting and press to cycle. Uh, they had one of the first ones, Matt, you reviewed that one a few months back, but that's one we saw recently. And it's cool because this maybe falls into that affordable gear category because I remember several years ago looking into getting a torque wrench. Sid Patricio, I don't know if anybody remembers him, but he did a lot of tech writing for us and uh, was really good about doing like how-tos and stuff. But he was always telling me like, you got to get a torque wrench, you got to get one. And back then the cheapest one was like a hundred bucks and it was, or more than a hundred. And a lot of them, you know, only had like preset values and everything. But now these tools are like under 50 bucks and you can get a big range. You can get two to 10 Newton meters on them. You set them to do whatever you need. And then they're also like multi-tools as well. So definitely a good tool to get. Now it's really affordable. Yeah. Oh, another tool that we saw from a couple of different people, including Lazine, is the tire plug tool. And really to call it a tool, I guess that's kind of that's kind of overselling it a little bit. It's just like a pokey thing that's got a little hole in it. So it's like a needle, basically. Right. And what it allows you to do is you stick these little like fiber rubbery tire plugs in if you get a hole in your tire. And I guess this is something we're seeing more as people are running tubeless tires because um, while you don't have a tube, you can still get a puncture in your tire itself. And sealant doesn't always seal it up. And so using a tire plug can get you out of a jam. Yeah. yeah the one I looked at at Interbike, the slug plug, it was a new brand. And I mean, it was more stashable than other ones I've seen. Uh, it was also lower price. I think it was like 10 bucks for like their whole kit. And then they have really thick pieces of, uh, of rubber, like a quarter inch thick. Oh, wow. So even if you get a massive puncture, like you can throw one or even two of those in and it might even work. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Genuine Innovations, I think, was one of the first that did that. And that wasn't even long ago that they came out with their, they call it bacon, I think is what they call the plugs themselves. But yeah, like you said, the kits are really affordable. The design, they had two different ones. One of them was nine ninety nine, and the other is like, I think it's nineteen ninety nine, but it's got like a nicer little tool and whatever. But yeah, it seems like a good addition to your emergency kit throw one in the pack and hopefully it'll help you out yeah totally all right we're going to take a break real quick but when we come back we'll talk about some of the trends we spotted at interbike this year and also talk about how the first interbike reno went stay tuned you can't see me but i'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now it's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing okay so maybe not but you never know until you get a hat for yourself Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. So I kind of touched on this earlier. One of the trends that we saw was more affordable gear. And again, we saw this across a number of different categories, and hopefully it's a trend that we'll continue to see throughout the year and from other companies. Uh, The other trend that I kind of picked up on, I don't know if you did too, Matt, was this trend toward more protective gear and different types of protective gear. And 
perhaps this is, you know, in response to sort of the rise in aggressiveness for lack of a better term in people's writing, you know, people are moving up from XC to trail or trail to enduro and starting to ride faster and harder. So what are some of the things you saw in terms of protection that are maybe a little bit new this year, Matt? Well, there were a lot of brands like showcasing, you know, pads, elbow pads, knee pads, uh, brands I'd never heard of before. And then, you know, some of the other brands coming out with knee pads and elbow pads that had never done that before. Yeah. Um, and then Thule was showing a new hydration pack, uh, the rail. And I got a sample of that, so we'll have a review on that. But it is an enduro-focused hydration pack. So you can mount a helmet to it, and it also has protective back inserts. Keep your spine safe. Yeah, I saw a number of those as well. Evoc has a new series of packs with a back protection built into it. And it's interesting, yeah, because they're all a little bit different using different materials and designs, but with the same idea in mind. Say that you, especially for like back protection, you don't have to wear a pack and then also, you know, some other piece of gear, like it's all one piece. So that's definitely nice. One of the things that I saw from a couple of companies are these new like minimalist pads and Basically, I mean, I shouldn't even call them pads. They're really just guards. And so they're designed more for like abrasion protection than they are for impact protection. They don't have any padding, anything that's going to like blunt the force of like hitting a rock or anything. But they will hopefully protect you from getting too scraped up. Like if you fall on the trail or brush by a tree or whatever. So, yeah, it's a little bit different than an arm warmer or knee warmer in that it's going to be less prone to snagging and things, and it's going to be like more ripstop material. The ones that I saw are from ASOS of Switzerland, which they like to say is part of their name, but they had that along with a bunch of new mountain bike apparel, uh, which is coming this year. But again, they're one of those brands that I'm pretty sure they haven't done pads before. I think they were more road oriented. And so this is interesting seeing them jump into it and especially jumping into it with like a new, almost a new category of protective gear. Yeah. And honestly, if you've ever had like bad road rash or trail rash, sometimes that hurts way more than bruised up knee. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, that seems to be a more common injury for me for sure than banging stuff. It's more just like falling and getting dragged a little bit along the ground. Yeah. So finally, this was the first year that Interbike has been in Reno and for a lot of consumers, a lot of our listeners, like probably like who cares, you know, like just tell us the news and it doesn't really matter because Interbike has always been, you know, it's a trade show. It's for the trade. And specifically that means it's a show that's designed for retailers and for brands to connect. And then also the media is sort of like a, an add on, you know, like what we do at the show is not a big part of the show, you know. I mean, it's maybe it's maybe ten percent of the show or twenty percent, right? But the the meat of it is it's all about dealers going and seeing what the various brands have to offer. And um, in years past, you know, many years past before the internet and all the technology we have today, these retailers they would place their orders for the year. They would go to Interbike and decide what they want to stock for the next year at their stores, and so. But that's kind of gone away. And so a lot of people, a lot of consumers especially, are 
I don't know if they were feeling left out or what, but a lot of people are like, yeah, interbike's dumb. Like I heard that that's going away and maybe it is, but I think what we are seeing is that it's shifting like what is going on at the show and like what the importance of the show is. And the move to Reno is definitely made to address some of the concerns that brands had, you know, in the show had been in Las Vegas for many years. Um, I attended Interbike Las Vegas for nine or 10 years or so in a row. And, um, and while it's really convenient for people to attend the show, a lot of the brands were spending insane amounts of money to go to the show and display there. And so a lot of them were pulling out for other reasons as well, because again, they weren't, weren't doing a lot of business there. A lot of the orders were again, taking place online and some of the bigger brands too, they, they were seeing, you know, they'd rather have their own event. So Trek has Trek world, um, specialized has various dealer events where they can do sort of like more one-on-one selling and education and stuff. So, so yeah, the trade show has gotten a little bit smaller, but the move to Reno definitely seems like it's not a step up, I wouldn't say, and it's not really a step down. It's kind of like a lateral move. You know, the show went really well. The people that were there were stoked, and it was good to, like, reconnect with people. It's always a really good networking opportunity and an opportunity to see what's going on in the industry. And I don't know. I think it's I think it's a really efficient way to, to learn a lot about the industry at one time. Matt, this was your first time doing interbike what was your impression of the show yeah it was it was a lot to take in but i mean for me it just seemed like uh, the most important thing was to network and connect with people it's just a lot easier to get on somebody's radar connect with somebody when everybody's at the same place at the same time yeah definitely and we've seen over the past few years the trend toward like these media events you know i mean we we attend a lot of these. We get invited to even more of them where, you know, somebody's got a new shoe launch or some brands got, you know, a new bike. And so they want to fly all the journalists and media people out and spend two or three days like showing the product and really like immersing the media in their brand and in their, you know, product or whatever. And as an engineer, as someone who's like interested in efficiency, it's just not very efficient. You know, I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of brands. And if we had to go like visit each one of them, there aren't enough days in the year. So (laughs) it's nice to be able to go and to to meet with, you know, dozens and dozens of people over the course of a few days and uh, get to know like the important stuff. And, and again, yeah, network with people and see different types of people, you know, you meet people from the brands and you get to talk to retailers and you get to talk to um, in some ways, you get to talk to consumers. The show has been trying to involve consumers more, like I said, with Outdoor Demo. They had consumer days, and there was some overlap between consumer and industry on one of the days. And so, yeah, it's it's a good time. It's a good thing to do at least once a year, I think. A lot of people maybe are disappointed that there isn't more product news. You know, that was a complaint we heard. It was like, oh, Enterbike's dead because there were no new products there. And again, I think that's the wrong way to look at it because it's not a media event. Like that was never the intention. And not only that, we just have so many, again, because of the internet too, like we, they're, they're literally big international mountain bike events 
pretty much every month, I would imagine. Um, obviously, more in the like summer months in the northern hemisphere. But you know, we have we have crankworks and we have sea otter and we have Eurobike and the Taipei show and you know, there's all these different events where products are being released. And so what brands are doing is they're just like, okay, this thing is ready. Like what's the next event coming up? That's where we're going to show it. And so you're not seeing one show. It's not like Crankworks is where everything new comes out or Sea Otter. Um, You're seeing a few at each show. And so if you're expecting there to be like one show where like everything new comes out, there isn't, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, But but there's it would make our jobs a lot tougher. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, we could just work really hard for like one week of the year and then just take the rest of the year off. Actually it doesn't sound too bad. But <laughs> but yeah, there you know, there was some new stuff. There wasn't anything mind blowing. And certainly there at Interbike there isn't and there won't be anything big from from the big brands because they left they left a long time ago and they're doing their own thing and you know, Trek is not there. Specialize is not there. That's, that's why we didn't have a lot of interesting hardtails. You know, the biggest mountain bike brands that were there exhibiting at the show and at Outdoor Demo. I mean, Pivot. Pivot's like the only one. Cannondale. They had a booth or a room. Okay. Yeah, Cannondale. And yeah, and then there's a lot of smaller brands that like KHS and Haro. Some of the brands that like, for whatever reason, people don't really follow anyway. So... It's definitely a different type of show and it's different than it's been in the past, but it's still, in my opinion, still has a place among the events and and there is good news that comes out of it. Yeah. Well, this has been one of our longer podcast episodes and we actually had even more that we didn't talk about, more things that we wrote up on the website, but just ran out of time. If you want to catch up on everything we talked about, from Interbike, just go on single tracks and search Interbike 2018 to get a list of all the brands that we covered and all the new products. And to keep up with the latest mountain bike product news, be sure to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram, pretty much anywhere on social media, and singletracks.com. Be sure to check it every day because we're posting new articles and new content there daily. That's all we've got for the podcast this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.